John chapter 12. We'll be taking up the word in verse 27. Stand together for the reading of God's word. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask you to bless that which you have appointed, the preaching of your word. Father, we pray that you would give us attentive hearts and minds, uh, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that the spirit who inspired the word would bless even now the preaching and the hearing of your word, that Christ would be glorified, and that we would be built up in our most holy religion for the praise and glory of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's good to be back with you and be back in the book of John. As we return to the 12th chapter, we've been away for a little bit, I want to remind you of the context. Jesus has been giving his last public discourse. Uh, the arrival of uh, certain Greeks uh, coming to Jerusalem for the Passover and hearing about him, they sought him out. They came and by Philip and then Andrew, they were brought to Christ. And then Jesus addressed them with the news that is before us. We heard two weeks ago of his substitutionary atonement, how that he uh, would be uh, lay down his life like the, the grain going into the soil that would bring, bring forth fruit. Jesus said it was necessary for him in order to accomplish the will of the Father to bring sinners to himself in repentance that Christ must lay down his life. Uh, from this illustration, then Jesus speaks of the cost of following him. At verses 25, we heard, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, There my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him will my father honor. Jesus is the good shepherd. is about to lay down his life for his sheep. What he calls his people to do is they have new life in him. He has gone before and done. Jesus continues this same discourse. We we interrupted um, from two weeks ago. Uh, We will have more interruptions, but we need to remember this is one discourse that Jesus gives on this occasion. It's the same, uh, at the same occasion, uh, with the same purpose and the same overall uh, content. This discourse will continue to the end of the chapter. This morning we're going to hear the voice of God that addressed his son and the people who are present. We hear the voice of the Father sound like thunder. We're going to use four main headings this morning. The Son submits to his Father. The Father's promise then to His Son, and the glory of the cross, and then we'll consider spiritual blindness. We begin with the Son submitting to His Father in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. You remember that we encountered a word earlier, the great turmoil that was in Jesus as He approached the grave of Lazarus and how he was uh, deeply moved within at the realities of sin, death, and the grave and the, the evil that Satan had visited upon the sons of Adam. And it was violent uh, emotion within him 
a sanctified, holy emotion, and yet a great emotion. And here we see something again of a deep emotion, something deep within Jesus. My soul is troubled. He's approaching his own death. And as he considers that terrible event with all of its complexities and the eternal consequences, he cries out. Now, when he says his soul, he's speaking of his whole being. It's not like he's just got this little part within that's troubled. A soul in the scripture often refers to the whole of the man, the whole of the individual, the whole of the person. And thus we could translate my soul is troubled to say I am troubled. He is troubled in his whole being. Uh, We are embodied spirits. We have the inner man that lives in the outer shell of the flesh. And even so it was for Christ, who was fully God and fully man. And he, as the Son of God, in his humanity, is about to go to the cross and to die. He would soon be that ransom for many. And so he's troubled. The word, it means a great and mighty disturbance within more than we might ever know. We get troubled and stir up about many things. Uh, we can have violent anger and uh, deep passions and, and sorrows uh, within, but this is much more. And this has been building within him because the hour has now come. He's approaching the time of his sacrifice, and it's become much more intense. The hour when the spotless Lamb of God will lay down his life. He will take on the sins of his people, all the filth and the corruption of those whom the Father has given to him, he will take it up and he will bear it. The sins of his people will be placed on his account, an imputation where he will receive that which is ours, it will be credited to him as though it was his, and then he will die in the place of his people. And of course then the outcome is with his sacrificial atonement, that he has satisfied the wrath of God. Wrath of God. He's received the penalty for those sins on the behalf of his people, God then takes in credits to our account, the righteousness of Christ, his obedience throughout his days, and this sacrifice that he's made for us. It's a marvelous moment. This is, this is the great moment in history. The spotless Lamb of God, suffering and dying in our place. As he takes on our sin, he will also take on the condemnation that is ours. In the court of God, in the justice of God, it will be necessary then that wrath would fall upon him. As Paul writes somewhere, he who knew no sin became sin. The innocent one will become guilty. And the glorious fellowship that he has enjoyed with the Father as he's walked upon the earth as the Son of Man will be broken. Now, we need to understand in his deity as the Son of God, there is no altercation, no changing of his relationship to the Father. Being fully God, one with the Father, same in substance, equal in power and glory, in his deity there is no change. Uh, You even heard me say that even as he in his humanity is the sin bearer, is being punished, in his deity he is part of the Godhead that is punishing that sin. But in his humanity he will suffer. He who knew no sin. Just think about that. He's spotless. He's never sinned. He's not had guilt or shame for sin as we know in our lives. But because he covenanted with the Father to be the atonement, the sacrifice for our sin, it will soon be that he will receive our sin on his account. And he will know guilt and shame. And then he will suffer and die. And it was necessary that there would be no fellowship with the Father. Being cut off from the Father, he will cry out from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because in that moment, the Holy God cannot look upon the sin that the Son was bearing. We can honestly say, Jesus is troubled here. This, that his soul is troubled is beyond our understanding. We know something of internal uh, troubles. Uh, Perhaps we wrestle with guilt and shame at different times in our lives. Perhaps we are overwrought and racked with grief and sorrow, a great loss. We can experience uh, deep emotions, Um, some of them good and wholesome, but others are passions that are unrestrained because we are sinners. Here Jesus is troubled in his whole being. I am troubled because a time has come. Then Jesus goes on. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
This is a difficult passage, and we, it's best for us to understand it when we remember that there's a similar cry in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he cries out to the Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's some other way, but then it's always coupled with, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Some commentators, and I will say blasphemously so, suggest that Jesus rebelled for a moment. Perish the thought. Jesus always did the will of the Father. He was always completely obedient. His, his cry out here is not one of uh, a re- a resistance to the will of the Father as a turning away from that which was given to him. But it's, it's a communication of the tremendous depth of the agony that he was in to receive our sins in the coming separation from the Father. Jesus is faced with the descent into Hades, as we confess with the Apostles' Creed, and it shook his human soul to its very depths. But here we see the same submission, the same submission to the Father. Jesus is steadfast. One of the gospel writers has written that as he enters into this week that he set his face like flint to say that his very countenance communicated that there was a determination and a resolution and an obedience that as the God-man he never wavered in his commitment to go forward. But yet we find these words that communicate to us the degree of what he was doing. We feel something of Guilt and shame for our own sin, do we not? Perhaps if you've never wrestled with the reality of your sin and the, and the condemnation of God that is upon sinners, uh, you may be carefree even as you go boldly sinning. But if we're redeemed and we have been given a new heart, then when we sin, we, we feel guilt and shame and godly sorrow, which compels us to turn to the Father. Jesus is going to know something even greater, not because he sinned, because he would bear our sin. Jesus, not even for one split second, rebelled against his Father. In the past, even at this moment, in moving forward, he's obedient. As he said, he always did. He said, I always do the will of the Father. I always do what I see my Father doing. He's completely obedient. Remember, he's the second Adam. And as the first Adam failed and rebelled against God, Christ, as the second Adam, came and was completely obedient, and thus the one who was able to give life. The way to be helpful to think about this is sometimes we face something in our life that uh, we might want to shrink back from, but nonetheless we go ahead with it. Perhaps it's a surgery. You've got a surgery coming up. Have you talked about it with the doctor? And there's there's a seriousness to it. There there are potential uh, harmful outcomes that could take place. You've been warned of those, and yet it's necessary to have the surgery. And so there's this troubling and a, a tendency want to shrink back, but nonetheless, you go forward and you have the surgery because it's the right thing to do uh, in a pathetic way. Uh, that gives us some sense. All analogies fall short because it's some sense of what Jesus was facing here. This reason the Son of God came into the world he was born of the virgin. He came to save sinners. He came to offer himself up as a sacrifice for sin. Remember John 3.16, that God gave him for this purpose, that whosoever should believe on him would have everlasting life. And in order for him to give that life everlasting, it was necessary that he would die. What we see Jesus do here then is he cast himself upon the Father. Father, save me from this hour. His hope and his confidence will even say his faith as man, as the son of man. His faith is in the father, his confidence that the promises the father has made to him, they will go forward with him. He cast himself completely on the care of his father. I find uh, William Hendrickson, a Dutch theologian just a couple decades ago, uh, does a marvelous job of capturing the sense of what is in this passage I'm quoting now, as though Jesus prayed, Father, save me from this hour, if it be possible and in accordance with your holy will. But do not save me from this hour if this would mean that I would lose the spiritual harvest 
Let me just pause for a moment. Remember, he just spoke in verse 24 about the grain falling into the ground and dying, that it could bring forth fruit. Jesus understands in order to attain that which he came into the world to do, he must suffer and die. So, but do not save me from this hour if it would mean that I would lose the spiritual harvest. For to obtain this harvest by means of my voluntary death is the very purpose of my coming into the world. Hence, Father, grant that through my perfect obedience to your holy will, wherever that will may direct, and especially in suffering and death, glorify your name. He's completely submissive. Regardless of the cost, it would cost him all. He would lay down his life in order to redeem a people. He would suffer the, the disfigurement of his outer being. He will suffer the anguish of soul, the perfect spotless lamb becoming the sin bearer. And yet he's willing to fully submit to the Father. And indeed, praise be to God for so great a Savior. Because if he had not gone through with what he came into the world to do, we would all perish in unrighteousness and under the wrath of God in the eternal fires of hell. But Jesus was obedient. The anguish of soul and yet a soul fully submitted to the Father. Such submission is impossible for sinners. Apart from Christ, apart from becoming a new creature in Christ and having a new heart and having our will renewed, it's impossible to submit to the Father. It is by grace, as we've just heard. It is the grace of God that brings salvation. And that grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive it by faith that God also gives us by the working of the Spirit within us. For that, too, is a gift. And even as new creatures in Christ, we know how we struggle to submit, how we struggle to obey. Paul, Romans 7, at the end of describing that struggle of a believer with sin day by day, seeking to put to death the deeds of the flesh and live for the glory of God, cries out, who shall deliver me from this body of death? If you're a a new creature in Christ, you know that wrestling. You know that cry. Who shall deliver me? Paul goes on, thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is because Jesus, even though he approached the time of his suffering, even though he was troubled within, would it not have been bizarre even if he wasn't troubled within? Would that not suggest that his humanity was not like under our humanity? He was fully human, yet without sin, and yet his humanity was of the same nature as ours. So you see something of that as he understands the realities of what's coming and the anguish beyond our understanding. And yet he says, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. He's in the hour, the hour that proceeds. It's not an hour in time, but that hour, the time in his life when he will move towards the cross, be seized, arrested, taken away, condemned, crucified, dead, and buried, and yet coming forth victorious on the third day, that hour. That's the hour he's come to the work that the Father has given to him. And so he cries out, Father, glorify your name. In all of it, Christ would have God the Father glorified. Throughout his life, he's walked in obedience to the Father, doing the will of the Father, pointing a sinful people to the Father that they might know salvation in the Son. You notice what happens in the text as we consider the second point, the Father's promise to the Son. You notice what happens here. Jesus was speaking of the arrival of his hour and the anguish of his soul that he experienced. And then Jesus prayed. As he's in this moment of of internal turmoil, Jesus prays. He's making a petition to the Father. Surely we can learn from this. We can learn from Jesus Christ is our example. He's much more than that. But he is an example for us in many things. That we, in the midst of trouble and turmoil within, that we shoot too, would cry to the Father. What, a, what better prayer can we pray but, Father, glorify your name. In this situation, in this circumstance, in my life, as you work in me, glorify your name. By your spirit, equip me to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to live for your glory, to, to keep your holy law and to walk in your commandments. Glorify your name in my life. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus 
prayer ends, this prayer that we've heard him speak in the presence of these people, he begins with saying, Father, glorify your name. In this petition, Jesus asked that the Father, by his revelation in the Son, would cause the radiance of his majesty, that is the majesty of the Father, to be displayed so that men would be compelled to ascribe glory to God the Father that is due unto him. What happens next? Those of you of my flock, you know that um, I use this word sparingly, and I've encouraged you to do so, and you've, and you've responded. What happens next is awesome. It is truly awesome. God spoke. Here's a crowd, these Greeks who have been brought. They're seeking Jesus. They would see him. There's a crowd around about him. And they've heard Christ speak of his internal agony and the wrestling of his soul and his submission to the Father. And the Father speaks from heaven. What an awesome moment. This is the third time that he has done so. When John baptized Jesus by the Jordan, anointed him as the Messiah, the Father spoke. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then when Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, once again, Peter babbling off things of the Father, covers the place with a cloud, and the Father speaks to those on the mountaintop. Again, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And here the Father again speaks from heaven. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. What a marvelous moment. Truly, this is awesome. Here's the witness of the Father by the word, along with hosts of signs and wonders that Jesus has performed. Thus he says, I have glorified it. You remember a few chapters back, the the religious leaders were contending with Jesus about uh, his testimony. And he says, my testimony is true. He's God. He cannot lie. uh, His truth embodied in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Father has testified through the signs and wonders that he has done that this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Word bears witness that he is who he says he is. As the prophets of old have spoken, Jesus come walking and fulfilling all those prophets. There's this tremendous testimony so that those who live are without excuse. And yet the Father speaks. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The Father will glorify it again even as his his son Jesus willingly submits and goes and lays down his life in the ultimate humiliation of the cross. The Father will glorify Jesus when he raises him from the dead. When that tomb breaks open on that third morning and Jesus comes forth victorious, for it was not possible for the grave to hold him. It's as though God speaks, so there was no uttering of the voice. There was a rumbling out of an earthquake. The stone was rolled back, and it was as though God again presents his son to the world and says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He has obeyed me even to the point of death on the cross. He has obeyed and kept all that I committed to him to do. He has kept his covenant promise in eternity past, made with me before the foundation of the world. He's come forth in the fullness of time, and he has done it. And he came forth with a victory over sin, death, and the grave. And the Father's, again, stamp of approval, this is my beloved Son. Now, on this occasion, it's not clear what the people heard. I believe from the context that we would understand that the people, they hear something, but they don't know the meaning of it. I believe that uh, Jesus at some occasion reveals to, this, to the disciples exactly what was said, because the people that are there, some they, they, they hear what they think is thunder. There's something loud. It's incomprehensible to them. They've heard a, a noise. Perhaps it's in a language, the language of the Father and the Son that they don't understand. Whereas others are present, uh, perhaps more aware of the moment, willing to acknowledge something supernatural has happened. Those who say, well, it's just thunder. They say, well, there was just a clap of thunder at this point. Just a natural occurrence. Not attuned at all to the fact that God is doing something marvelous. But others, perhaps uh, mindful of that, they say, well, an angel has spoken to him. They, they recognize uh, the supernatural nature of something that has just taken place in their presence. They're willing to acknowledge something extraordinary has happened. But they did not understand the message. Just like when Jesus appeared to Saul when he was going to Damascus. Those traveling with him, 
They see the light, they hear a sound, but they do not hear the conversation that takes place between Saul and the Lord Jesus Christ on that occasion. The words were for him. And so Jesus responds to perhaps the bewilderment of the people in verse 30. He says, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now, Jesus' response seems unusual. He's just prayed and the Father has answered him. He's verbally answered him. So what's the meaning of this? Well, first, there's the matter of contrast that uh, the language of Jesus that he speaks is that this was more for the benefit of the crowd than it was for him. But nonetheless, it was a benefit for him. In his humanity, the Father speaks, but it was again a testimony that the Father was demonstrating once more in this supernatural event, even though they can't understand what was said, that this is the Christ. This is the Son of God. This is who he he is, who he says he is. Secondly, strictly speaking, Jesus did not need these words to be comforted because he's already been resolved in his soul to do the will of the Father. Thus he prayed, Father, glorify your name. That's a yieldingness. That's a submission, a willingness to go forward. Even the turmoil that is within him has been resolved in that last petition of his prayer. And thirdly, it seems obvious that Jesus must have communicated what was said to his disciples, and they would be comforted in the events that will unfold over the next few days as Jesus goes to the cross, as they're going to see these things, that the cross was not a defeat for Jesus. But indeed, it was the greatest triumph in all of history and that they would know the Father was at work in the events that are unfolding. And surely we see in the accounts of the gospel that there's confusion amongst the disciples. They, they go to the grave. They find it empty, even as the women have said, and that they're bewildered. And he's told them he's going to rise their day, but it's, it's all jumbled in their head, and they don't understand it. And yet these words must have been ringing that the Father has spoken to him. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Confusion for them, trying to understand it. But Jesus has already told them, this is not a defeat. This is a victory. That they should know that the Father is at work. Fourthly, those in the crowd that had any spiritual discernment, and it seems that some do because they're willing to acknowledge this has been a supernatural event, an angel has spoken. Those that would have been in that category stood to understand something remarkable was taking place in the history of redemption. Remember, we've talked about that at this time, that Jesus comes into the world, that the Jewish nation has had a sense that the Messiah was coming, that his arrival was imminent, that it was impending, and they were looking for him, and there were even false messiahs that rise up. There will be more that will arise after Jesus' coming, but there were those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. Remember Anna, Simeon, in the temple, when Joseph and Mary took Jesus to dedicate him. They were looking, and there were others. But indeed, there were those present that by the working of the Spirit were given ears to hear and eyes to see as this continues to unfold and the events of the week unfold, that there would be those that the Holy Spirit would be drawing along to them and they would grow in their understanding. And those are in that category that were present. Indeed, this event, as Jesus said, would be for their benefit, that they would benefit from it. What we see here is the God the Father and the God the Son are at work together in the great plan of redemption. The words of the prophets are coming to fulfillment all for the glory of God and for the good of sinful men who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Well, Jesus' words that follow support this understanding of what has taken place as we consider thirdly the glory of the cross there's, there's a movement, there's a progression in this account. Even as Jesus is giving a discourse and the events are unfolding, there's a progression in what is written by John. The Greeks come seeking Jesus. Philip and Andrew bring them to Jesus. And it seems to have triggered something in Jesus' mind that now is the hour. The hour has come. And that hour includes and reaches the zenith or its peak at the cross. Jesus is deeply troubled in soul. He's resolved on doing the will of the Father, and he prays that that in, and the Father responds audibly, although only Jesus understands what is spoken. That supernatural event took place with Gentiles present. There were Gentiles, Greeks, 
They're not the sons of Adam, uh, of Abraham. Uh, they're proselytes. They, uh, by the grace of God, they've been drawn to be monotheistic, to worship the one true and living God, that they recognize that the God of Israel is the God, then there is no other. And indeed, that was the testimony that Israel was to bear to the nation. That was the responsibility to communicate that, and that if they would be obedient and God would bless them and mighty works were done on their behalf by God, that Gentile nations would see that God, the living God of heaven, is the only true God. You see that when... Um, under Moses' leadership, the children of Israel come out of Egypt with the mighty hand of God breaking this superpower down to nothing and leaving them in poverty as Israel comes out with the wages for their slavery of 400 years. They plunder the Egyptian as they approach the land of promise. What is it that the spies found in Jericho? Rahab and her family were alarmed. They had heard of this God. They're Gentiles. They had heard of this God, and they have faith in God, and they petitioned the spies that God would have mercy on them, and indeed he did. And when the walls of Jericho came down, that part of the wall where Rahab and her family lived stood, and they alone were spared. The testimony of God has gone out. And thus we find these Greeks present. But that testimony was much more than that. But indeed that the seed of Abraham, who is the Christ, that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That whether you're Jew or Greek, some other Gentile, indeed to the distant isles of the land, that whosoever should look to the Lord and call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And like Abraham, by faith, they can be declared by God justified. By faith, even Gentiles can be saved. Well, Jesus further explains here in verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Now, several things of significance that Jesus' passion accomplishes. Jesus is entering into that time when he will go to the cross where in the hour as he's declared. So there's several things that will take place. First, by suffering and dying, Jesus will secure salvation for sinners. There will be those who by grace through faith are saved, but there will also be those who reject Christ and they will perish under God's wrath. Thus, he says, now is the judgment of this world. As the light of the world, Jesus will expose men's deeds. Remember back in the, after Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in chapter 3. John records now, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And that men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So that's the reality. Judgment has come. Jesus comes into the world and is the light of the world and it exposes the deeds of wicked men. And there will be those that will run and hide, ultimately will cry out that the rock should fall on them. But there will be others who by the working of the Holy Spirit are convicted of their sin and unrighteousness and will behold the majesty of Christ and will be drawn to him. All of this depends upon this hour. And so it will be in the great and final judgment of the great white throne that men, women, boys and girls will all be assembled before Christ as he sits on his throne and he will separate to his right hand the sheep and to the left hand the goats. These who have walked in obedience to Christ because they have faith in Christ and these who have rebelled and turned away from him and he will judge them and he will be on that throne because of this hour, because of his obedience to the Father that he went and he laid down his life. Therefore the Father has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. And as Psalm 2 that we'll sing in a little bit talks about that the Father has set him on a throne. So the nations, they rage and they plot in vain. God laughs and holds them in derision because he has set his son on his throne to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. And it is because of this hour, because of Christ's obedient. But it's also the judgment. The ruler of this world will be cast out. That ruler is Satan. At the cross, it appeared that Satan had won. I think that's some of the, the discouragement, um, the bewilderment of the disciples, uh, and, and not just the 12, but others who had been following Jesus. They had an expectation. It was a misguided expectation, looking for someone like David to come forth with military might and overthrow the Romans, missing that their bondage was not to Rome. The bondage was within. It was bondage to sin. 
And Jesus had come to deliver them. When Adam sinned in the garden, Satan gained something. He, as it says here, was the ruler of this world. By rights, in a legal sense, he had authority and power to do things with the sons of men under God, only by the decree of God, but nonetheless, God gave something to him. But because Christ's obedience, Satan is overthrown. And we saw some precursor of that earlier in Jesus' ministry. He commissions the twelve, and they go out. He gives them authority to heal and to cast out demons. And they come back rejoicing as that's taken place. And what did Jesus say? He says, I've seen the ruler of this world has a falling, Satan falling like fire from heaven. He's being cast down by truth. The truth of the gospel, even the Lord Jesus Christ. By Jesus' obedience, even to the point of death on the cross, he's gained that right to sit on the throne. The throne of his father, the second Adam, will reign. And indeed, he does reign. And Satan is cast out. The nations no longer are under subjection to Satan. The rule and reign of the nations has been given to Christ. The father handed him over to his son. This is in fulfillment of the prophecy that God made through David in Psalm 2. It's also the triumph of the Lord's servant of Isaiah. In Isaiah 52, 13, through the prophet, God says, Behold, my servant, this is Christ. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. God has given him a place above others. And yes, being lifted up, as Jesus says, points to the manner in which Jesus will die. He was to be crucified on a Roman cross. Remember how many times we've seen the Jewish leaders, they're enraged, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, even though he's speaking the truth, I and the Father are one, I've been sent from the Father, I've come down from heaven, I'm going back to heaven. They were enraged, and what did they do? They, they wanted to stone him. They were occasions where they actually took up the stones to stone him. But Jesus is not going to die by stoning. He's going to be lifted up on a Roman cross. Just as in the wilderness when God set the fiery serpents because his people had rebelled and murmured and grumbled against him, he sent these serpents amongst the people that were biting them. They were poisonous and people were dying. God in mercy told Moses to make a serpent of bronze on a shaft and to lift it up and to tell the people if they were bitten and if they would look, they would live. It was a picture of Christ in the wilderness so long ago that if they were dying and perishing, even because of their sin, if they looked, they lived because the serpent was lifted up. It's a picture of Christ lifted up to the cross. If we would live, we would look to Christ, lifted up, crucified, the only hope of glory. And that's what Jesus refers to. If I am lifted up, I would draw people to myself. Consider that. If I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. We've been talking about the cross. Paul says clearly that he preaches Christ and him crucified. He was an apostle of the cross. But let us not think of the cross narrowly. It's, it's like a, a, a label for something. Because the salvation is not in the cross. The salvation is in Christ that he secured when he was crucified on the cross. And that's what Paul is saying. He preaches Christ and him crucified. The focus is on Jesus. It was he who was crucified. It is he who saves. What does Jesus say? If I be lifted up, indeed, he was going to be lifted up. Perhaps we say, like in Philippians 2, Paul says, if there is any consolation, is there any comfort, that what he's saying is since this is so, since this is so, and that's what Jesus says. If I am lifted up in the sense of since I'm going to be lifted up from the earth, I would draw all peoples to myself. In John 6, Jesus says that the Father draws people. He says, no one comes to me himself but the father draws him he says whoever comes to me i will by no means cast out what a comfort for sinners if jesus is drawing you as a sinner to himself go with a confidence because he has said to you i will not cast you out he even bids you come come you are weary and heavy laden i will give you rest so it is that God is drawing, the Father draws, Jesus draws, as he says, I will draw. The Spirit is the means by which they draw. The reality is, I'll say this again, we're like Lazarus. 
We're dead in the tombs. We're unable to do anything for ourselves. And if it wasn't for the working of the Spirit to draw us, we would not come. But indeed, he does. So here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus is the hope of the nations, not just the Jews. See what Jesus says? I will draw all peoples to myself. The seed of Abraham, it is through him that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There were Greeks standing there. A few, we don't know how many, a handful of Greeks. It's just a foretaste. Even as Jesus addresses with them present, let all the peoples of the earth be encouraged that Jesus is a Savior for sinners from every tribe, tongue, nation. It's not just for some. It's for any that would come. And so here are these Greeks standing here hearing the truth. Oh, what a comfort that must have been for them. They come seeking Jesus. They get to see him. They, there's no evidence that they had any dialogue or discourse with him directly. But they're there for the, the dis- discourse where Jesus says, I, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. When we were looking at this two weeks ago, put it out there that we should understand, Jesus is communicating, amongst other things, to these Greeks and he others would listen, what sort of Savior he is. Lest they be confused, lest they expect him to be, as was the spirit of the age, a mighty warrior who would defeat Rome. He's a greater warrior. He's a spiritual warrior. He's come to do battle with sin, Satan, death, and the grave. He's come to be victorious. That's the nature of who he is. That's what these Greeks hear, and they are even encouraged He's for them, even for them. One last thing before we move on. Jesus twice says, now. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast down. Now. It's the time. Sort of the way the book of John, I mean the book of Revelation opens. The time is at hand. So Jesus is saying now. This is an eschatological moment. This is the fulfillment of something, judgment of the world, Satan cast down, the Son of Man exalted, the drawing of men, women, boys, and girls from the ends of the earth. These are all things that would take place in the last days. That's what the prophets have foretold. And we find even from the apostles that this is the beginning of the last days. This is a shift in the epics of time. There's a time that is before Christ and a looking for the coming of Christ from the garden onward. They're looking for Christ. Now he's here, and now is the time. All the fulfillment of the prophecies, it's now is coming to culmination. Now Christ will be exalted. Now he will go forth victorious, and there will be a shift in things henceforth from forevermore. And even so, in 70 AD, Jerusalem is destroyed. The nation of Israel is destroyed. The gospel goes out even to the ends of the earth. And God continues to call a people to himself. This is a great eschatological moment, a shift in times, a shift in history. My friends, what that means is we are in the last days. We're not waiting for the last days to begin. They begin here at this moment as Jesus went forth and altered all things. What we're waiting for is the return of Christ. What did Jesus say that would be like? Like a thief in the night. No one knows the day nor the hour. There's no signs and wonders. Like a thief comes suddenly and unannounced, Jesus says, by coming being, and blessed is my servant, who I find doing my will when I come. Are you looking for that hope in Jesus? Are you looking for Christ's coming? Perhaps you're someone who he's calling and drawing to himself even now. Yield. Come. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Perhaps you're looking at current events and you're tempted to despair. Don't despair. Jesus is seated on the throne of God, ruling and reigning over the nations. The Father has given the nations to him, and everything that's taking place is according to his will. I don't understand what's going on in our day. That's okay, because I understand who reigns. Jesus is king. He is accomplishing his purpose. It is for his glory. He is glorifying the name of the Father, and it is for the good of the church. We don't have to understand we just need to know that he's in control. Nothing is out of his control. If you are united to Jesus by faith, then be at peace. Not to be trite, but God's got it. He's got it all. It's all firmly in his grip. Nothing comes to pass but his holy will. And indeed, that's what Jesus rests in. As the Son of Man and the Son of God, he goes in obedience to the Father. 
But John tells us something more. I'm just going to touch a little bit on verse 34. We'll pick up with it next week. Here we see this spiritual blindness. This is not the first time we've seen it, as John has recorded the events of those days. The crowd's listening, and it's evident from what they say they knew something of the law. For the people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Well, when they speak of the law here, they're talking about what we would know as the Old Testament, what they've received from the books of Moses all the way to Malachi. This is the revelation of God through holy men of own, ruled along by the Holy Spirit. They, they understood the, the, the testimony of the Old Testament. There's several things that they're going to be thinking about, several passages. Because what is it they say? That the Christ, we, that the Christ remains forever. Where would they get that idea? Well, Psalm 110, we sing that. It's about the Christ who is also a priest. He's the prophet, priest, and king. And there we are told that God says of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, an enduring eternal priestly order. Or the prophecy given through Isaiah in Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Clearly a messianic passage. This is speaking of the Christ. These people seem to understand that. And what does it go on to say? And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with justice, judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. They were listening to the scriptures. We understand that Christ will be forever, they said. But their mistake was thinking only in terms of nations and kingdoms on earth. Just like us, we get so caught up in the fleshy stuff, the things of here and now. They're, they're good, they're necessary things, but we put an inordinate emphasis on those things, whereas we're to seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness. And then all those things will be added to us. This is the problem they have, it's the problem that we have. The people are connecting with Jesus' words. They seem to understand that in verse 23, he's talking about a death. When he talks about the seed being laid down, that it must die. They're having some understanding. He's talking about himself. They understand that he identifies as the Son of Man. He says that in verse 23. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. They may not believe. Certainly there were those that didn't believe that he is who he said he was. But some of them are saying, okay, so he says he's the Son of Man. And the Son of Man's the Messiah. We have these Bible passages that tell us that the Son of Man, the Messiah, is supposed to live forever. How can he say that you're going to die, that the Son of Man, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And then they ask a very honest question, who is this Son of Man? There's some inquiring in their mind. They're asking really with a sense of what they're saying, the question is, what kind of person is he that must be lifted up? And that is a very legitimate question. He's not just a mere man. He's the God-man. That's what they're asking. They don't understand it. It needs to be revealed to them by the Spirit. But they're saying, what kind of person is this that he must be lifted up? They have eyes, but they're not yet seen. They have ears, but they do not hear. There's still a spiritual blindness. And my friends, that's true for us. Perhaps this morning you're hearing these things and you see there's something to them, but it doesn't make sense to you. There's a confusion yet. Your eyes have not been opened. Well, call upon the name of the Lord. Oh, Spirit of the living God, give me understanding. Interesting that the people, they understand that Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. I am the Messiah. They're just not prepared to accept it. And they cannot understand how the Son of Man was to say that he must die. Why would he die? It's because they don't understand the depth of their problem. My friends, your condition is serious. As a sinner, the condemnation of God is upon you, as Jesus said back in John 3. They're condemned already. And the only way to escape the condemnation and the wrath of God, God's justice for sin, is to be found in Christ. And it was necessary that he, the Christ, should suffer and die on the cross. It was necessary that he be God and man, that he be the perfect sacrifice, that he who would offer up himself as a sacrifice for sin, 
would be righteous and holy, altogether God, and yet one of us, altogether man, that he would suffer and die in our place. Let us not make the mistake that the people did and just think of Rome and physical things, nations. Our oppressor is sin. And the Savior of sinners is Christ Jesus our Lord. Spiritual blindness is not just a problem in the first century. It's a problem that is prolific today. Without the soul-changing work of the Holy Spirit, we would all stumble around in the darkness and never come to the light. That is Jesus Christ. Without the preaching of the word, we would not understand our true condition. We would not understand who this Christ is. It is through the preaching of the word that we come to understand the nature of uh, some difficult passages. But to see that Christ is the Son of God come in the flesh, that he is the God-man. It's the word of God that reveals this to us. It is through the word of God that we would see the cross as something more than foolishness. It's the victory that has overcome the world. It is there at the cross that our salvation was secured. It was by Jesus humbling himself. The Prince of Glory, the Son of God, God of God and very gods, that he humbled himself and he died on the cross to bring salvation to the sons and daughters of Adam. It is by the cross that Christ broke the power of sin and that the wrath of God was spent. It's spent. As John writes in 1 John, he was our propitiation, meaning that he received our wrath, or the wrath of God for us, so we deserve. And it's spent. My friends, if you are in Christ, by faith, there is no wrath for you. Christ has received it all. Our good shepherd died for his sheep. The innocent died for the guilty. The sinless Savior took on sin and died. And he, in shame and humiliation of the cross, has won the greatest victory of all of history. Therefore, God has given him a name above all names, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. O Lord our God, we do marvel at these things. Father, we... We sit here and wonder this trouble within our Redeemer. That in his humanity, the, the troubling of his soul, he felt, Lord, what that must have been. And yet, Lord, he did not shrink back. Father, we bless you and praise you that you sent your Son, the one who alone could come into the world to save us. And that he did all that was necessary to fulfill righteousness. He lived the obedient life that we failed to live. He suffered the death that we deserved to live. And that in him we have life everlasting. Oh, blessed God, we praise you and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. May he ever be praised in all the earth and in our midst and by our obedient lives through the strength that he gives us by his spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.